This one's going out to all you chicks and chickadees out there in virus land. This is Sean KB, Corona casting straight from the Q zone. <laughs> that sucks so bad. <laughs> we don't actually have to do that. <laughs> oh, man. Here we are. Life hasn't really changed for me that much. Um, I don't know. I really enjoy it just because this is just a, a you know, this is, I'm just, it's an excuse to be lazy and never leave the apartment and just uh, like shit post and read and watch movies all day, but it's just suddenly socially acceptable, you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> There's, I mean, this is kind of uh, schematic, but. There's two types of people. There's like extroverts and there's introverts. Yeah, and this is just an introvert's dream come true. <laughs> yeah. I've been waiting my entire life to have this where I can just vibe in the morning and shit post in the afternoon and yeah. game in the evening. You know the rest of that whole thing. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. We are, uh, unfortunately, it's, well, fortunately, it's a temporary thing. So this is not the new future. But I guess the. You don't know that. I you don't, don't know, know how long this is going to last. It doesn't seem like nobody seems to think this is going to be a short term thing. Like, I've heard as long as 18 months. I've heard 18 months, too. If. Uh, if all goes very, very poorly, they're saying 18 months. I think the low end is, what, three months? Okay, that's or less still like than a that, pretty maybe? long time. Yeah, it is. Considering. It's enough for like a lot of the habits I feel like people have ignored themselves to in modern everyday life for those habits to start to break down a little bit. Yeah. But I was on a conference call with some international communists earlier today. And I think it's an open question. Uh, and I was, these are people from the UK and Germany and elsewhere in the United States. It's really up in the air whether the effects of this on consciousness, on the economy, on material and social life are going to be temporary or if they're going to be more long lasting. Because mm -hmm. we were talking before the show, Amanda, thanks for coming, coming hey. on the show. Hey. Thanks for breaking lockdown to come and pod with us. No problem. Um, this was the first time that I, not the first time I've left my apartment, but the first time that I've left my neighborhood since the quarantine, since I decided to, since I self-quarantined a little over a week ago, because this, this is technically not a full-scale quarantine situation, right? right? Everyone's just like individually responsible for socially distancing. Right. But, you know, we're not on a full like lockdown situation. The National Guard isn't delivering food. It's just individual responsibility. But it's the first time I've met, I've um, left my neighborhood in over a week. But you have been keeping up on podcasting. You're a bit of a hot <laughs> commodity right now, being a yeah. medical anthropologist. I'm not a medical... Oh, I have a medical... Okay, so I, people keep wanting to call me a medical anthropologist. I want to call you But that. it's That's not... That's why I I'm had you on the show. a medical... <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like I have to uh, make clear that I'm not a medical anthropologist. I don't have a PA. See, now, like, now... Okay, I, I'm... I'm an independent researcher. There that's you go. what. <laughs> you're also, I think it's fair to say, a very effective Twitter shit poster because that's gotten you. you 
appearances on pretty much every podcast on the left that I know and care about. Mm -hmm. This is my third podcast that I've done this week. This week, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm an expert now. You're an expert now. (laughs) Yeah, as my mother would say, fake it till you make it. And you've also went on, you went on Al Jazeera too to talk about. Yeah, I was uh, on Al Jazeera a few weeks ago. Um, they're kind of annoying if I like 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 no no anti-Qatari sentiment on this show please (laughs) we try to keep that as a private position is that like where you get your funding from (laughs) no no we do not we do not have a bank account in Abu Dhabi (laughs) anyone who says that's lying that's all rumors and hearsay god they like so like three they over the course of the last month they have like sent me like a whatsapp mass- message at like seven in the morning and Ugh. they're like hey can you come in at like like 1 p.m today and do this interview for the top of the news hour and you know like it's so tremendously stressful because they don't know like they don't let you know exactly what the segment is about until like right before you're supposed to show up to the studio unlike antifada which sends you too much detail in the show outline yeah (laughs) we are known for that actually other podcasters who come on our show no but it's better to it's better to uh like give an outline because then you can like prepare what you want to say whereas like if you don't receive anything at all then you, I just like over prepare and then I will like whatever they ask me, I just try to like direct back to whatever my talking points are. Right. And at some point, like I, I just start talking and talking and like at some point I just like forget what the question is. And I'm like, am I, and I start worrying about like, am I even coming close to addressing whatever the question that was asked was well i mean i watched your appearance in preparation for the show and i thought you did a fine job because again you're not just on the front lines of this as somebody who has a degree in medical anthropology and is also a professional shit poster on twitter with many followers uh calling out all sorts of bad bad takes and uh nefarious doings online you are also a first generation chinese american immigrant well, I'm not. Well, well, my parents are immigrants. Yeah, Sorry. I was born here. You're a second. Does that make you second generation? Um, so it's weird because they use both to describe that. Like, if you were born here, they say they either say first gen or second gen, but I think it's technically second gen. It's like uh, a first cousin or second cousin or third cousin first removed. Nobody has any fucking idea what it means, but you just kind of say really, it. I yeah. A cousin, a first gen cousin, or a first cousin is what you would consider a cousin, right? Yeah, right. Then what's second? Uh, it's like your your great uncles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but cousin, anyway, like yeah, yeah getting Nobody back knows. to like what you said earlier, <laughs> it's like numerology. You did over prepare, and it kind of freaked yeah, me out. <laughs> well, like I said, uh, we are known for doing that on this show. Um, I mean, maybe that's part of what makes us listenable. I don't know. All I will say is that appearing on the antifada no matter how much we might inundate you with um preparatory notes is no pressure compared to going on television worldwide on al jazeera yeah, and so. like that's only 10 minutes they only give you like three to seven minutes this is an hour yeah. but going on al jazeera live is like 
a hundred times more stressful than this. Well, in Al Jazeera, it's more serious because the host would never say, we're now Q-casting <laughs> from the quarantine zone. <laughs> they would never do that. It's all very buttoned up over there. So let's talk about like, um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to have you on. Uh, we follow you on Twitter. Let's uh, talk about like uh, life under quarantine in New York City. Let's talk about life under quarantine. But I want to give uh, an anticipatory statement about we're going to be talking about um, how there's been a pivot in recent weeks towards blaming this crisis wholly on the Communist Party of China, the People's Republic of China, Chinese people, and then, of course, by extension, uh, Chinese Americans here in the United States, and how dangerous of a potential that could be moving forward. But let's talk about life in the Q zone. Life in the Q zone. <laughs> See, you got it now. It's so easy to... It's just so easy to take on that uh, the DJ T cell sort of uh, vibe in this, but um, <laughs> the uh, life. Is, so, so we were talking before the show about how New York City ha- is is a very sort of particular, unique place when it comes to this particular pandemic, and we're kind of the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the country because a. This is a cosmopolitan international city. So mm-hmm. we've had more cases coming quicker, I think, because a lot of folks come from abroad back mm-hmm. home or to visit or whatever. Um, but also we live on top of one another. Mm-hmm. And I think, what was it? The the cases are up to 16,000 in New York State as of today. Um, hold on. I have it. All right. Um, so 15,168 total confirmed cases. Oh, yeah, this yeah. is the most recent number um and i don't know like if you like know this but as recently as just a few days ago this past week new york new york and washington were kind of uh like neck and neck uh over who was going to be like the leading which state was going to be the leading number in confirmed cases but New York is now number one with like over 15,000 cases. Best city in the world. (laughs) Well, this is New York State, not New York City. Best state Um, in the world. And Washington is a very distant second at 1,793. So we have like 16 times more than them. So like almost 5,000. Well, it says here almost 5,000 cases just like jumped overnight. But I think uh, a lot of it has to do with, I mean, I think it's still like kind of difficult to get tested in New York, but it might be a little bit easier than other states yeah um, cuomo was pretty early out, our, our, i should say for the international and national listeners our governor our great governor andrew cuomo of the cuomo dynasty declared a state of emergency pretty early i think it was the second one after washington state and it was about a week ago we we're recording on uh the 22nd of march so yeah new york city has also been obviously the first one on the East Coast, anyways, to get serious about trying to contain it and certainly trying to, I guess, fight for the limited tests that mm-hmm. exist out there as the federal government has completely screwed up the response to this. I think, like, this. you can, um, like, there are certain CDC guidelines where, like, state labs can create their own tests. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, it's, like, kind of a pain. There's a lot of bureaucracy you have to jump through. But I think the reason that like it's a little bit easier is because uh, they approved these uh, state lab created tests. So we're not using the ones from the CDC. Oh, okay. but I could be totally wrong. Well, regardless, I think 
it's clear at this point that it's not just that there are a lot of cases in New York State, starting in New Rochelle, but now also spread down directly south to New York City, but also that a lot of the seriousness of this global pandemic, and specifically in the United States of America, is being masked right now by the lack of testing. Mm -hmm. We are not testing people. So when you start to do the tests, all of a sudden you start to see numbers climb, even though these people are infected, possibly asymptomatically spreading this infection the entire time. It's only now we just know that 16,000 people in New York State have. Right. So uh, I think we should take a moment to talk about how like the Trump administration completely fumbled the response in terms of testing, right? Yeah. In the beginnings of this epidemic, when it was still, you know, most of it was still contained in, within China and we had like a few weeks to prepare, um, the World Health Organization sent these guidelines for creating tests, which every other country in the world followed. But the U.S. decided to create their own more complicated tests. <laughs> and when they we when these tests were sent out to state labs to be tested, they found that they falsely flagged these harmless samples. And so we had these unreliable tests, which set us back weeks in terms of response. And then due to the uh, severe shortage of uh, unreliable tests, Um, The CDC also put into place these very strict criteria in order for someone to get tested. So you had to have um, traveled to a country where there was an outbreak within the last two weeks. You had to have had contact or you had to have had contact with someone who was a confirmed case. Um, or your condition had gotten so bad that you were hospitalized with bronchitis or pneumonia. And in the beginning stages, these were the only ways that you could have access to a test. Um, At some point, Pence made an announcement that, like, anyone could get tested. But obviously, we still don't have enough tests. So in practice, that's not the case at all. Right. Vice President Pence, definitely the person you want on the front lines uh, leading the federal. The one who was single handedly responsible for an HIV outbreak in the state of Indiana a few years ago when he was governor. Yeah, Yeah. let's let's recollect that. What exactly happened there? How was he? I think his uh, government uh, uh, pulled the funding for Planned Parenthood. And there was this uh, little rural town in Indiana called Austin where there was one Planned Parenthood where you could get tested for HIV. So once the funding was pulled, they had to shut down, so no one had anywhere to be tested, and it uh, ended up creating like this HIV outbreak in this small town. All right, so uh, Mike Pence is, I guess, on the front lines of something, which is uh, right-wing religious fundamentalism combined with bizarre psychotic um, libertarianism mm-hmm. uh, destroying what's left of a already fragile um, health and safety regime in the states and the federal government of this country you love to see it folks you really really do life in the Q zone life Let's in the Q zone about life in the Q zone <laughs> I uh, we touched on this a little bit on uh, line go line goes down too with uh, Dick and Nate about it i think that again what's happening here in our lives here in new york city which are changed 
completely, completely changed. It's an extrovert's world now, baby. It's the golden age of posting. Uh, our lives here in New York are kind of an indicator, I think, of how things are going to progress around the entire country because not everywhere, I think, is taking it as seriously or has as serious a problem right now as New York City is. Right, because, um, well, like, okay, so we've talked about this before, how these, like, public health crises reveal this tension between individual like personal liberties and personal freedom and uh like the collective good right right? um in new york city where um people are just like living on top of one another it's so densely populated and everyone is taking the subway um i don't know what it's like now but as recently as last weekend nobody was really like taking seriously uh this idea of socially distancing yourself. People were going to bars um, and going out dancing, going out to clubs like it was normal. And that's why you're seeing such a rapid spread of this. It's because nobody was taking it seriously. Um, In conversation with my friends earlier, um, one of the things we spoke about was um, how life under lockdown you can call it our life under social distancing which will probably become lockdown soon because apparently like a forced social distancing is coming down the pike allegedly either nationally or through the states but how differently this life is from the life that we're all used to living under late 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 hustle grind rising grind uh late capitalism neoliberal capitalism um you know we're not not only constantly out trying to make a living in this world, not just in New York City, but elsewhere. We're not only constantly kind of in these uh, globalized networks, this material community of capital that spans across the nation and the entire world. We're also constantly like out and about and, um, you know, trying to, 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 I don't know, gain some sort of... Uh, entertainment or, mm-hmm. or or experience in this world that isn't simply like posting but this pandemic has really really shut that down and i think the question is whether again this is gonna lead to any medium to long-term changes in the way that people look at the world mm-hmm. uh, i'm not sure it is if you look at i think somebody was talking about the spanish influenza of the 19 teens and said that uh it, it barely registered as a blip on people's right. consciousnesses. Uh, there, that seems like kind of uh, there. There could be a lot of reasons for that. Like the world just came out of World War One, an extremely violent and destructive war. So maybe that was that dwarfed the influenza thing. I think people lived differently back then than they live now. Yeah. But I don't think we should take for granted as socialists, communists, anarchists, whatever, that this is going to necessarily be the giant sea change that we imagined it would be. We were talking about earlier how, um, you know, like like maybe a few years uh, down the line, this is something that doesn't even register. This could be a blip in our, like, memory, right? We could just be like, oh, remember that coronavirus panic? And then the other person would be like, oh, yeah. Because um, I guess, like, we're just constantly bombarded with, like, news and, like, constantly, uh, like, hooked up to Twitter. And, like, events seem so compressed now. Time dilation. Yeah. um, And, I mean, like... This year alone, we've experienced um, 
uh, like being on the brink of World War Three. Right, with Iran. Yeah, yeah. anyone remember that? <laughs> yeah, and now we're in the very beginning stages of a global pandemic, and it's only March, right? It's only March. A global pandemic, I would add, combined with what will be certainly the most serious economic crisis we've mm, ever yeah. ever experienced in any of our lives. I don't think that, I mean, you could go back to 1929 and the beginning of the Great Depression to try to make some analogs for the amount of economic activity that's either slowed down or stopped due to this. But even the Great Depression was a much more quote-unquote normal economic crisis because it wasn't that people were forced to not do economic activity. It's that the gears, the circuits of capital slowed and slowed down and ground to a halt at that point and people couldn't couldn't find work mm-hmm. now you just can't work like you yeah. literally if you were, were uh, you're telecommuting now right i'm telecommuting yeah um about a week ago um about a week ago the office closed down and everyone started working from home um yeah well that's a blessing in disguise i guess that's a silver lining for this you get to now not commute yeah yeah it's it's honestly like made my job a lot more bearable like it, so much energy is just i mean like i basically like wake up every like nine roll out of bed don't even change my clothes hell yeah yeah that's the dream uh-huh. well this this pandemic and the social response to it puts lie to a lot of things one of the things that puts lie to is every time your manager, if you're able to do so, when you ask them if you could commute from home on a Friday to say take care of your kid or like mm-hmm. look after a sick loved one or just you had you were busy and had shit to do and the manager said, No, there's no way you could work from home. We can't make money that way. That's not your job. You can. They just you want can. to surveil you. Yes, exactly. Thank <laughs> they you. They just want to put you in that panop sorry. Sorry for this Foucault. Well, no, I guess this I know. isn't Foucault, but it's it's That's okay. We'll, we will accept Panopticon. We will accept Except one Foucault <laughs> reference per episode. Any more than that, you get thrown out of the Q zone. You're going to be on those mean streets, the Corona streets, the streets of Corona. <laughs> Me and Susie down by the schoolyard. Um, yeah, the other thing it put lie to, I think, and this circles back to what we were talking about with Mike Pence and Donald Trump and the federal response to this, is I think it puts lie to the idea that the ruling class gives a flying fuck whether we live or die or not. Mm -hmm. As long as there's money to be made, it appears as though they just don't give a shit. When did they start taking it seriously? When oil crashed to $20 a barrel Mm -hmm. and the economy took a 25% hit. That's when they started to take it seriously. Before it affected, you know, equities and commodities, they just literally did not give a fuck. Mm -hmm. So don't, after this, don't believe that they actually fucking care. Don't believe that they care if you live or die. Don't believe that they are setting up measures to even help or mitigate things like this, uh, as long as at least anyways, this particular faction of the ruling class is in control of our government. But I also might add that Joe Biden has now been missing for five days. That's like the big thing on Twitter right now. Is right. People are like announcing that Joe Biden's dead. Well, I was hoping he would catch coronavirus, just, you know, just last week. I mean... You're you're speaking for yourself there, but I think you're also speaking for everybody <laughs> who wants Joe Biden. Yeah, to I come mean, down I was like pretty thrilled when it. I guess Donald Trump 
doesn't have coronavirus, Boo. but um, it looked for a while that he had coronavirus because he was in. He met with Bolsonaro and Bolsonaro's aide, who yep. both tested positive for coronavirus. Um, there are a lot of Corona truthers out there. Yeah, and Donald you know, Trump. looking like he had had it, I was hoping that it would spread through Washington and reach Joe Biden. Because how hilarious would that, that be? Would be if, like fucking hilarious. Joe I mean, Biden if for nothing else, Bernie Sanders shouldn't drop out because like it's two seventy-eight-year-old men just like playing staring, chicken, playing chicken with the coronavirus. <laughs> Who's going to get coronavirus first? <laughs> I should say three. There's also a seventy-four-year-old in the White House who could right. also die of. Well, coronavirus. I mean, if Bernie Sanders, if <sighs> okay, if both of those guys, both of those men got coronavirus, like. My money is on Bernie Sanders to survive. Oh, 100%. Like, he seems, like, way, way healthier than way Joe healthier. Biden. We've said this on the show before, but, like, <laughs> Jews from Brooklyn, those motherfuckers live forever. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is going to be, like, a, 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 he's going to be at least 100 before he croaks. He's just got, <laughs> like, he's, his, his anger and his, his stubbornness, his uh, sense of, uh, of righteous uh, indignation is just going to take him <laughs> all the way to like 105 years old. This is not the last year. And Corona couldn't take him out. And then Trump is the same way. Trump is like against all odds. The man has not treated his body like, ew, I just thought of Trump's body for a second. Trump has done nothing in his entire life. Doesn't that make you healthy. so mad yeah. that they they're so rich that they can afford like the best medical yeah. team in the world? That motherfucker like never works out. <laughs> he eats like McDonald's every single day. He's been he off probably seven does. A day. He probably does have coronavirus, <laughs> yeah. but like he has the best medical team yeah. and he, like he can survive it. Yeah, he's also of like that like weird German stock where he's like six foot three and like. Uh, I don't know, just nothing can phase him despite all the things he does to try to uh, fuck himself up. It's sad, folks. It's sad. Ultimately, all these old folks right now who we want to get corona or we don't want to get corona, uh, it's all sort of contingent at this point. We don't Joe know Biden probably get will get coronavirus, but like the Democratic Party will just like drag his dead body like <laughs> onto the debate stage. Weekend at Biden's. <laughs> yeah, the... Politics has gotten really weird, really, really weird. It seems like, you know, we were caught just a few weeks ago in this uh, quadrennial pageant of uh, presidential electoral politics where everything was centered on who was going to win the Democratic nomination and then who was going to go up against Trump and maybe beat Trump and maybe not. But even that, it seems like, has kind of gone to the back burner at this point, as at least everybody I know has kind of just stepped back and is taking quarantine day by day, mm -hmm. uh, is trying to figure out how for the next three to 18 months they are going to live their lives. They're setting up little like patterns. They're getting all the preparatory stuff in place to kind of just hunker down and I guess try to ride this thing out come what may. So, you know, a lot of these sort of larger issues right now seem like they're being displaced by day-to-day -day survival, at least in New York anyways. Yeah. Yeah. How are, um, you have family in the Midwest, right? How's your family holding up? They're good. They live in Indiana. Um, they're actually, last I checked, there were three confirmed cases within their county. Um, I'm a little concerned uh, just because my dad has some underlying health issues, but... I don't know. It's not the case like it is here where people are just constantly like 
up against one another. Like, they, right. yeah, they live in like a suburb. So, uh, you know, they can, it's very easy for them to like stay away from people. What I am more concerned about is this escalating like anti-Chinese sentiment. Yeah. And uh, like the possibility of them being targets of harassment. That's really, and like, to be honest, that's what I'm more afraid of for myself. Like, I'm not really scared of contracting coronavirus because right. like, if I do, I do, I'll probably be fine because like, I'm healthy, whatever. Odds are um, young people who are relatively healthy. Yeah, I'm more concerned about like, being the target of a hate crime right now. Let's talk about that. Let's go back in time. It seems like a million years ago, but back to, I guess, January when uh, incidents of this new respiratory virus um, started to kind of arrive in the public consciousness, arising first in the Wuhan region of China. Mm -hmm. um, what Bring us through like kind of a timeline of how things spread and how this is connected to China. China, as Trump would say, China. Well, um, I think, uh, I don't know, they started seeing uh, people with, hospitals started seeing people with like uh, symptoms very similar to SARS. I mean, was it in December or like late November? Yeah, what was SARS? What did that stand for again? Um, Sick ass respiratory disease. <laughs> yes. It was like MERS, which was Middle Eastern re respiratory yeah. syndrome or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, it's like it's a respiratory infection, very that's like very similar to the flu. Um, you get a fever, dry cough, shortness of breath. Those are the three main, like the three most common symptoms, right? Right. And like uh, it had spread through Wuhan and then um, China imposed the quarantine like in late January. Right. Uh, and then. So so the reason why I ask is because there is now this, uh, let's say, narrative that's in place um, emanating from the White House, but being echoed through the right wing media mm -hmm. and down through social media where China, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, and authoritarianism in general, communism in general, is to blame for the spread of this global pandemic. There was an incident that right. took place. So, yeah. um, so this incident that you're referring to, are it's the one where there were these eight doctors in Wuhan, and they started seeing patients that had these symptoms very similar to SARS and they were talking about it on WeChat, which is a Chinese um, like messaging app, right? Uh -huh. And um, I think uh, these local officials uh, came by and uh, like arrested them because I think they thought they weren't conveying the information through the proper official channels, right? Okay. right? And so they, I don't want to say they were detained, but they were questioned briefly, not detained, um, and then let go. And this anecdote sort of spread uh, to U.S. media, and U.S. media picked it up and ran with it and sort of suggested that this was happening on a systematic level right. when it 
really wasn't. It was the case of this like one isolated incident um, in Wuhan, and these officials were later reprimanded by like the upper echelons of the party, right? But you know, in every single story that was about China's mishandling of this uh, crisis, and there are like hundreds, this is the one story that they point to that's like, you know, see, this is why authoritarian, quote unquote, governments, totalitarian regimes, like, are not equipped to handle these outbreaks because uh, of this, like, lack of transparency. Right that's inherent within these like totalitarian systems. And then it morphs into something much less about politics and something much more just ethnocentric or racist, which is this discussion about this collective docile nature of Mm -hmm. the Chinese people as people, how like there's something about the world that they create that they are too, I guess, robotic to, um, I don't know, take care of their individual liberties or that like they get the sort of social system they deserved. And if it's a transparent, collectivist, authoritarian, uh, totalitarian system, then that's what the Chinese people. Yeah. So like the only way that Chinese people are seen as human in the West, in the States is if they, you know, criticize the Chinese government. Right. That is the only way that they are seen as remotely human. And this is why, you know, a lot of the cultural production of, like, Chinese diaspora in the West, it's, like, these kinds of, like, criticisms Mm. of the Chinese government. You know, like, look at all the the famous artists and the famous authors and whatever that you know they got famous through like criticizing the government. Right. Like, I don't, I don't like what, what's that really famous artist's name? Uh, the really know, lame one. The guy with the ponytail and the beard. Yeah. I know who you're talking yeah. about. We, I could punch it in or uh, like I could punch it in later or you just call him like the uh, running like, dog I imperialist win. jerk off or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I know who you're talking. Didn't he win like a Nobel prize or He's something like that? He's won a ton of prizes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 we'll figure out uh, running dog imperialist jerk off's <laughs> name and, and I'll punch it in later or not. We'll just leave it like that. But yes, why, I know name <laughs> why name him? Why name why him? Why give him the dignity of naming him? That? <laughs> so I see what you're saying, right? So like Chinese people have no agency. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they have no opinions. Um, in in terms of how Western culture and media understands them, unless they're doing what we think they should, right? Do. Unless they can be used in some any, way to yeah. like bolster American policy toward China, right? Irrespective of whether like there are serious issues or not with the Chinese state, with of the course. PRC or the, yeah. the CCP, the knee jerk thing is to say that like Chinese people can only have agency if they're doing a particular type of criticism of a particular type of aspect of Chinese. Right. And I mean, the underlying, like the underlying like idea of that is that like they, it's used to, it's a call for like American style democracy. Right. 
Yeah. And we've seen recently some protests arise. And I'm going to let you, if you want to even address this, I'm going to let right. you go ahead and uh, weigh in on this because it's it's maybe not my place to do so. But we've seen Oh, you protests. just don't want to get canceled for I this. I don't want to get canceled for it. Aches I'll no, fall on the sword. Uh, uh, fall, <laughs> thank you so much for that. Uh, I don't want to fall on the sword for this. because uh, Partially because I don't know much about it. Partially because those uh, the cancel crew out there is really ruthless and will probably get me. But I'm referring, of course, to... The, what, six-month-long protests that you've seen in Hong Kong? Mm-hmm. Um, why, don't you, why don't you give us like kind of a, a brief synopsis of what happened with that? You don't have to go crazy with the details, but there was like, it was an extradition thing, right, with the mainland? Right. There was, um, oh, I forget the details, but there was like a guy who murdered his girlfriend in a really like brutal way. Sounds like a nice guy. Sounds like um, a freedom fighter. Yeah. And, um... I'm going to fuck up the details, but um, they wanted to extradite him to the mainland. Um, But uh, the protesters in Hong Kong thought that was an overreach of the mainland government. And let me let me step back for a second to give like the the larger picture Mm -hmm. is that the area of Hong Kong, which is like an island and also adjacent region off of uh, southern China, was owned by was a colony of Great Britain up until was it 1999? Is that right? Uh, 97. 97. Over, yeah. 1997 when it was handed over to the People's Republic of China. But in handing that over, Hong Kong, due to its kind of special status and unique history as like a longtime British colony with different laws and blah blah blah, was allowed to have a I think a relative degree of autonomy, right? Uh, yeah. So it was called um, one country, two systems. Okay. Yeah. One country, two systems. And so I get the sense that as as time has gone on, not in a very heavy handed, but in a sort of incremental fashion, the two systems have been like somewhat converging. Like it seems like the PRC is trying to standardize Hong Kong more and more. And that's kind of the background of the democracy protest, right? Is that trying to make like one country, one system sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, okay, so... There has been like a, quite a lot of like breathless coverage of these protests, uh, like in U.S. media, and they're always kind of analyzed from this like really superficial uh, like lens of pro democracy activists versus authoritarian communist China. Right? right. What is not mentioned is that there is. Um, um, there's a lot of like xenophobic resentment against the Chinese government. Uh, it's existed in Hong Kong for a long time. And a lot of people like take this resentment and also direct it at mainlanders. In wait, wait, wait. But I thought that the 1.4 billion people of China, all these Asians over there, were just one disaggregated mass, that they're all the same person. How could well, there be divisions <laughs> between the mainland and Hong Kong, let alone North China, South China, etc.? So, like, Hong Kong, they're Han Chinese, like, like uh, the majority of mainlanders, right? But... Um, they were a British colony for so long that a lot of them have a bit of this colonized mindset. Mm. And they like sort of constructed an identity based on like, first of all, speaking Cantonese, uh-huh. um, whereas, you know, like 
Mandarin is spoken throughout most of the mainland, uh, except for like Guangzhou or sorry, Guangdong province. Um, so they sort of like feel like they have this monopoly on the Cantonese language, huh. even though I don't know, like there are like 13 million people in Guangdong versus like, I don't know, like a little over like maybe like 2 million in Hong Kong. Sure. Um, and also like a certain relation to modernity, right? They feel because they were a British colony, um, they like they they feel like they're like not like backwards Chinese, right? The primitive Chinese mm-hmm. people of the mainland who are, um, it sounds like the, the people, the Hong Kongers, many of them anyways, have a similar sort of view of mainland Chinese as, say, the West does, mm-hmm. as quote-unquote Westerners do. Right. So um, there has been, this resentment has existed there in, for a long time. And um, it was reignited uh, during the protests. And then when this uh, coronavirus epidemic started like spreading outside of China, it like became just a hundred times worse, right? Um, so a lot of Hong Kong people uh, would refer to mainlanders as locusts Ooh, because they would like um, swarm in like through the border into Hong Kong and just like take what they considered Hong Kong people's resources, right? And, you know, like Chinese tourists, often they like come on a bus and there's like a lot of them. So, you know, they would call them hordes of locusts, wow. right? Um, um, in the beginning of the epidemic, when it started spreading into Hong Kong, the government built this. This is like, after a ton of like sometimes violent protests, right? Right, right, right. Um, so the protests go on. There's a lot of back and forth. There's, as as I understand it, there's different factions within the protests. So we don't want to mm-hmm. like typecast everybody who's out there in Hong Kong because there are like left and anarchist right. elements of it. But like the, the the protests, as much as they were continuing, were somewhat kind of petering out these democracy protests. I think like there, I mean, there was already a bit of re- like xenophobia within the protests. Uh, like the longer the protests went on, I feel like like they started like moving more in that direction. So the right wing elements of that mm-hmm. uh, pro democracy, maybe the same people who were uh, carrying American flags in the streets and signs that said "Bring us democracy, Donald Trump." Mm-hmm. Maybe those same people might have been uh, taking the lead when it came to uh, increasing the xenophobia and anti mainlander sentiment. And then the epidemic comes. Then the pandemic comes. The epidemic comes. comes um, yeah. And then uh, the Hong Kong government builds like this quarantine or isolation unit uh, for people uh, with the virus. And the protesters just like torched it. Oh, that's not good. Um, and then, um, um, you know, there is a lot of resentment against the Hong Kong government for not for refusing to seal the border with the mainland build the wall build the wall <laughs> um, there was an incident where explosives were found at a train station uh, where like train would come from the mainland into Hong Kong um, and there were explosives found there and it was this like attack that expressed you know like anger at the government for not sealing the border wow 
Um, and then also a lot of restaurants in Hong Kong, um, when this epidemic was spreading, uh, they would refuse service to mainlanders. Like, so at the entry, they would check that you spoke either English or Cantonese. And sometimes they would even check your ID card to make sure you had permanent res residency in Hong Kong. Wow. That's yeah. like a no blacks, no Irish, no dogs yeah. sort of thing, like yeah. the signs you'd see in the United States 100 years ago. All right, so maybe the relationship between Hong Kong and mainland China is a little bit more complex than we were given to uh, understand. So if, if, if that's what's happening in Hong Kong, I think that Western media, Western politicians have seen that as a sort of signal that all of a sudden now the Chinese people are going to rise up and institute a full liberal capitalist democracy in the People's Republic of China, I guess because of the poor response, quote unquote, to this mm. particular crisis. Do you see that as a possibility moving forward? Or is that just wistful thinking on the point? Wait, of, that like, that, like this, this Western fantasy? No, <laughs> no. I think um, it seems like the US media, they have overemphasized. I mean, of course, like people are frustrated with the government there, right. right? But I don't think like very few people want American style democracy, right? <laughs> well, it's like this is there's this is, like no there there are no stirrings of an uprising to overthrow the government in China right now. Yeah, it doesn't seem that way. The I mean, there's there's a longer conversation, and we're gonna have it because uh, Nate and Dick and I are doing intense research. We've teased this before. For line goes down three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We're gonna do a long, long series on uh, Chinese political economy, and we're gonna look at the way in which the peasantry and the working class really took the driver's seat for much of the 20th century in China. And then in the 1970s, and then certainly into the 80s and 1990s, a red bourgeoisie, mm -hmm. a red, uh, uh, a capitalist class arising out of the material conditions of China, opening itself up to the world, opening itself into markets, and also a Chinese capitalist class that has taken levers of power within the Communist Party and led to a situation where now, if there's any sort of stirrings of democracy, uh, they're not coming from the beaten down working class of China, it seems. Mm -hmm. The billions of, hundreds of millions of people who are without health and safety protection and whatever, working long hours in the factories, at least up until recently with the epidemic. But if there's any sort of change in the government of the PCR, it seems that it would come out of battles within mm -hmm. the ruling class, uh, the Chinese elite, essentially frustrated because with a monolithic party, that is now almost fully sort of embourgeoisified, um, uh, I guess the word would be, uh, in the throes of embourgeoisification. There's no, unlike the United States, um, ground, no terrain, mm -hmm. like in the U.S., to go out for different factions of the ruling class to kind of like jockey for power. The, the main issue, it seems like, within the Communist Party is um, not having an ability to kind of self-correct mm. uh, within the, the capitalist or ruling class itself. So, I, yeah, I think that, again, this is like another example of how we, especially in the United States, you know, having been the global hegemon for mm -hmm. like the last 80, 90 years, we, we only see things in the rest of the world from this mindset of like, well, if they're not doing if if they're not doing things the same as here, they're not doing anything at all. Yeah. 
And yeah, uh, yeah. that wishful thinking, I think, is like just completely matches with U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. China, the United States, uh, its policy has been since Obama has been to try to blunt the rise of China as a global power. Yeah. Yeah. And now China... Tell us a little bit so, about what China's doing in order to kind of prepare well, for its yeah. ascendance. Well, um, well, actually, let's talk about. Um, sorry, this is my podcast. No, now. please do. <laughs> no, that's great. I like taking the back seat here. <laughs> um, let's talk about like the response in China and how. Well, so they've managed to stabilize their their situation, right? They have, yeah. And um, that was also critiqued when they took the right measures, which mm-hmm. are now working. There's no new cases in Wuhan. Then that was seen as another example of how they're authoritarian because they shut everything down so people wouldn't spread anymore. But I'm sorry, right? Go on, what were no, you so yeah. like, I think a few days ago, for the first time since this ep- epidemic started, there was a day, the first day since where China did not see one reported case of of COVID-19. Uh, by community spread, because I think they still oh. have 41 cases okay. that came from the outside, but that's different though. Okay, yeah. but um, so... I mean, like, what what is the U.S. response? It doesn't seem like we really have a plan, right? So uh, the Daily Beast, they uh, put out this article where um, it was this article about how, like, the White House put out a cable saying that um, uh, they were launching this communications campaign uh-huh. uh, to blame China for the epidemic. <sighs> um, and like China's response was, or lack of response, was the reason why it spread the way that it has. Um, I've seen tweets to that um, uh, by like Tom Cotton, by these mm-hmm. real serious, like well, what are called national conservatives, the Tucker Carlson type Republicans who are trying to match a kind of xenophobic nationalism with an kind of bizarre economic populism. Yeah. Uh, you have some examples? I see you're pulling out your phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Oh, so I was just going to read the headline. Yeah. The White House is launching a communications plan across multiple federal agencies that focuses on accusing Beijing of orchestrating a cover-up and creating a global pandemic, according to two U.S. officials and a government cable obtained by the Daily Beast. So this is official U.S. policy now to spread this idea. So I've seen this manifested in two ways in the media, right? Um, The first is that, like, you know how Trump has been calling this last several days as calling it the China virus. China. China China virus. China virus. Um, so I have started to see op-eds and articles defending the use of, uh, that term. Okay. Um, because that blames it on China, uh, and China's response. Um, the other thing I've seen is, um, you know how since China's, stabilize their situation they've started donating medical supplies um and masks to italy and iran mm-hmm. um now i've seen a lot of media framing this as a pr offensive on as china's part china currying favor across the yeah. world using aid so uh, here's, has america ever done that before <laughs> so here's um a headline from abc news China on virus PR offensive sends masks and 
experts abroad. And then as the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic moves outside Asia, China's ruling Communist Party has gone from being on the defensive to a public relations offensive. Right. Okay. And so, oh, and then they're like, in this Daily Beast article, there was a really, really funny uh, part. Funny haha or funny fucked up? Both. Okay, go um, on, go on. Okay, so it says here, but the administration isn't just focusing on criticizing, criticizing China. It's also painting America's response to the global pandemic as, quote-unquote, extraordinary humanitarianism. <laughs> and then this is a quote from a cable, right? The United States and the American people are demonstrating once again <laughs> that they are the greatest humanitarians the world has ever known, according to the cable. Uh, the United States stands ready to provide more assistance mm. to China if the Chinese Communist Party would allow us to do so, which is hilarious <laughs> because, like, what are we going to send? Right. Like, we the, medical, the medical supplies we don't have. The, the, the doctors who are running out of in hospitals right yeah. now. I mean, Cuba. Cuba is sending their doctors to Italy to, to help them out. The United States, we can't even sort our own fucking situation out. How is our response with the rest of the world going to be any better? It's so, it's so bizarre. It all, honestly... All of this, and these are all really good examples of how this... People say don't politicize the virus. Okay, it's deeply fucking political. What's happening right now is this larger battle, this kind of inter-imperialist battle happening right now across the world to frame this particular disease and its response in foreign policy terms. Yeah. When ultimately it is a human disaster, it's a epidemiological so, disaster. Yeah, what's fucked up is the majority of the commentary that we're getting on this is not from epidemiologists or like public health experts. The majority of the commentary we're getting from this is from like think tank demons. <laughs> <laughs> and that is still a growth industry. Folk. They are people. they are telecommuting right now. They are putting the propaganda of empire together as we speak. They have no trouble doing their productive labor within this epidemic. We should talk about this Washington Post op-ed. Oh, what do you got for us? Give okay. us some more uh, juice. Give us some All more All right, grift. let me pull this up. Um, there was an op-ed uh, written, uh, well, it was in the Washington Post a few days ago. Headline is, this virus should Democracy be forever... Democracy dies in darkness. Democracy dies in darkness. <laughs> this virus, the headline is, this virus should be forever linked to the regime that facilitated its spread. And mm. it's written by a guy named Mark... Thiessen, who, oh, where have I heard that name before? He well, sounds he familiar. He was a speechwriter for Bush, the oh. second one, George George W. Bush, oh, right? Oh, the, the mass murderer yeah. who should be in the Hague, okay. Former Bush speechwriter, current American Enterprise Institute think tank wow. parasite. And, and, and my understanding, too, is that he wasn't just a speechwriter for Bush. He was also a speechwriter for the Secretary of Defense, Donald oh, Rumsfeld, right. Rumsfeld right. who was directly prosecuting an illegal war that killed over a million Iraqis, has destabilized the Middle East, and led to a massive refugee crisis, including the, the rise of, of ISIS. Right. So this guy, Mark Thyssen, he goes to prove that if we take... The justice of Nuremberg seriously, the idea that you can have an international court that lays out indictments and guilty verdicts or innocent verdicts even for war crimes. If Julius Stryker, Streicher, mm -hmm. I should say, who was the head of an anti-Semitic rag called Der Sturmer, 
through the rise of the Nazis and into the Nazi regime, spreading anti-Semitic um, propaganda and helping to basically lead to a war uh, where Germany, Nazi Germany, takes on the rest of the West. If Julius Stryker could be convicted of a war crime simply for propaganda, then I would argue that by the Nuremberg standards, Mark Thiessen, Thiessen, whatever the fuck his name is, should be in the fucking Hague, if not worse. Okay. okay well, we don't say just... the G word here, but he he should probably be in a gulag. I'm sorry. Go on. Let's no, let's read no his problem. Op-ed. No problem. Um, so in this op-ed, he defends uh, President or Trump's uh, use of the term China virus because he wants to blame the Chinese government right. for spreading this. And like Trump calling it the China virus, it accomplishes two things, right? First, it deflects on his administration's like total lack dog of response. Shit. Dog shit response. Second is it's a dog whistle um to his like racist supporters that foreign equals bad right right anyway so he defends that but also in this op-ed he writes both viruses and virulent ideologies fester (laughs) in the fever swamps of totalitarianism (laughs) and then emerge to kill us in our cities in our streets Two decades ago, it was a terrorist attack. Today, it is a a once-in-a-generation pathogen. But in both cases, the lack of freedom in a distant land created conditions that allowed an unprecedented threat to grow, bringing death and destruction to our country. All history, all (laughs) politics, all reality just completely elided. Terrorism is the same as pandemic. America's number one, the brown and yellow people of the world because of their docile collective totalitarian regimes are going to destroy the United States and our freedoms because they're bad. It's just the whole thing is just it's it's such a fucking reach, but. It's a reach that reached all the way into the one paper Washington of record, Post. the Washington fucking Post. Yeah. So there you have it, folks, conflating 9-11 with a pandemic, yeah. trying to turn what is a global human crisis pandemic into a incitement to ultimately violence, I think. Right? Yeah. That's what these people would want. What's really interesting to me is the way that um, a lot of these think tank people have been using like the virus as this sort of metaphor for like the Chinese economic emerging economic influence itself. Right. So talk about that. That's important. Yeah. So um, disease metaphors, disease metaphors. So not just a vector of the pandemic, but there's also something diseased about their social system. Right. Yeah. And okay. So this goes this is like decades old. Um, you can like trace it back to the 1950s where like um, we knew about viruses, but we didn't know how they behaved until we were able to observe their behavior. And we saw they behave like Chinese communists. <laughs> we observed their behavior underneath a microscope and we saw that like they sort of like um, like penetrate a host cell and then make that host cell just reproduce the virus itself. Right. Like it like completely takes it over. And so this was the 1950s. So it, like during the Cold War. McCarthy is a baby. Yeah. And so it was really common at that time to use this like sort of virus metaphor to talk about um, uh, like the Soviet Union and communism and how communism would infiltrate 
uh, the states through the border through these communist spies, mm. and uh, they would just brainwash Americans. Manchurian candidates, Manchurian ca- Manchuria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, it's a very similar thing now. Um, the Washington Post a few weeks ago ran this op-ed headline was like a communist coronavirus oh my god and it was like an, don't another bury one the of lead these, there dudes another one of these op-eds where uh you know ostensibly talking about the virus but actually talking about like needing to contain china's economic influence right at all whatever cost possible yeah this metaphor does a lot of work right i mean what I think I said this earlier, but like this has to be seen again uh, in front of the backdrop of a jockeying for power of a Mm -hmm. declining United States imperial hegemony on the one hand and the beginning of maybe the middle of a rise of China as if not like a pole within the um, the capitalist uh, infrastructure of this planet, but like maybe even the Mm -hmm. the dominant power in the world. And I think that the use of that metaphor is is really interesting because it shows that the the United States and its policy leaders can take this rationally mm-hmm. and say like America's had its time on the stage. We've kind of gone through this financialization financialization process. We've cannibalized clearly at least our health uh, our health uh, infrastructure in the United States, let alone our manufacturing and everything else. We can't just say, all right, we'll go gently into that good night. Instead, of course, because this is capitalist imperialism, it has to be a plot. It has to Mm -hmm. be a virus. It has to be this dirty, diseased menace from abroad that's making it so America isn't number one anymore. Because that means so much. And it means a a lot to like to many common, you know, everyday people in the United States that they might be right wing or they might be liberal who are shocked, shocked, I tell you, uh, pearls clutched at how poorly the United States government has responded to this. But like, it's not even oversimplifying to say that in many ways, the United States is a failed state. Yeah, And it's not oversimplifying it to say that for the last 30 years, China, as, as it becomes more and more capitalistic, has been a rising power. And you see this with things like the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. And you see this... Uh, Huawei. In the, yeah. yeah talk, what's, what's the company called in China? Huawei. Huawei. Yeah. What's going on with Huawei? Huawei is the telecom giant um, that's uh, like creating the next generation 5G network. Uh, I heard about 5G. 5G is the thing that the uh, nano... Uh, the nanobots that the coronavirus is actually made in, made of, uh, when the CIA unleashed those nanobots into the human body, the Chinese 5G is going to be what turns them on and turns coronavirus into a Rockefeller-backed plot in order to uh, decimate the white race and bring about the rise of uh, Chinese domination across the world. There's a lot of conspiracies out there, folks, and a lot of them are connected to China, and a lot of them are connected to like 5G. Yeah. So go on. What, what's this company doing with the 5G? Uh, 5G is just better, better Wi-Fi, right? Better yeah, internet. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I think they've. Uh, well, the U.S. has blocked it here. The company. Yeah, the company. But um, they tried to get Europe to block it too, but Europe was like, "No, we don't want to do that." Uh, and so the U.S. is really mad about that. Because Huawei, because 5G is a new technology that's coming that supposedly is going to like change everything. Like, you know, all the time these technologies are coming out, faster communication, ease of, you know, 
whatever across the entire uh, world. But like, I think what's interesting about the Huawei thing and why I think you're seeing things like the trade war and why you're seeing the United States try to shut this company out of the global market is because there's been a dynamic for 40 years or so where the high technology, the research and development shit happens in the United States. It happens in Silicon Valley. The design happens in the United States, but then the manufacture of it happens abroad. Recently, that's been in China. And then the super profits from that come back to the United States, even though the thing was mostly made physically in, say, China. Huawei, I think, is a huge threat because it shows that China can lead in making really cheap, really efficient, really technically, technologically advanced uh, instruments and doesn't need the United States research and development and design complex in order to get that done. So it's a real threat, I think, to the way that the global economy has been with the United States taking the high value parts of production and uh, other countries, especially China, doing the kind of uh, simple, semi-skilled manufacturing type jobs. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense, right? So we want to stop them from being independent when it comes to like technological development. Because that's the next step, right? As they rise up the value chain. It's hard to imagine that just blocking Huawei is going to... Huawei. Uh, Huawei, thank you. My Mandarin is not what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other is the, the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a big major deal. investment infrastructure project that uh, involves like, I don't know, 50, 60 countries and it's going to like uh, um, connect Asia and Europe and Africa. So that's sort of... Uh, The Chinese state, at behest of capital, uh, making investments across the world in order to create their own infrastructure for global trade outside of the orbit of the United States. Also very scary if you're an American policy planner. Mm. Folks, folks, the reason why we're talking about all this is because it's easy enough to point to a Washington Post uh, article talking about this metaphor between like Chinese people and disease. It's easy to say like Trump should not be calling it the China virus. That's going to stoke incitement and violence. Okay, What's so harder like- to do is to actually point to the global material reasons why this racism is being, and xenophobia mm-hmm. is being stoked against right. pe- people in China right? and Chinese Americans. I here. do want to like make this point here where, um, you know, blaming Trump for calling it the China virus or the Trump administration for calling it the Chinese virus, just like a very knee-jerk liberal thing to do. Um, You know, that, like the reason that uh, hate crimes against Asian people are escalating is not because of that. Like this was only, he only started recently calling it the China virus, but what is the difference between him calling it the China virus and then the New York Times calling China an authoritarian incubator of a pandemic? Is that which an actual have, quote? That's an actual quote, which they've done. Authoritarian incubator. Yeah, wow. yeah. I mean, like, but they, they both assign, uh, like, intent to, like, a foreign other where none it's, exists, right? It's a fucking virus. virus yeah. Viruses don't have intent. yeah. Yeah. So they assign intent and agency to either like a Chinese person or the Chinese government. Right. Right. So, I mean, like, it's really easy to like finger point at Trump. But like, like, what are we reading every day that, you know, like reinforces this? 
Yeah, it's more than just conservatism. It's, as you pointed out, it's also liberalism. And I think that if we've seen anything come out of the last <laughs> three, four weeks of this um, sort of electoral campaign, uh, I think it's become more clear, clearer and clearer, that liberals can't be trusted with much, if anything, right? Uh, like the liberal media and, and certainly liberal voters and politicians all getting behind the senile, doddering old neoliberal guy in order to take away the chances of like, objectively, objectively in this crisis, the the best person that you could have to lead a capitalist state. Like the Bernie Sanders, everything that he's proposing, everything that he's doing right now as they've sort of pivoted towards doing mutual aid type shit online, everything in Bernie Sanders' platform is completely rational to have for this capitalist state right now, especially with the crisis. But no, you can't have it. You can't have it, folks, because this liberal class, this group of uh, PMC demons as you call them before and their fucking lackeys of the media <laughs> would rather go down with a means tested with a means testing ship than they would <laughs> fucking creating the rudiments of a social democracy within this country so like not just on china but everywhere i think it's become very fucking clear that these people are just as much our enemies as Donald Trump and his administration. And in fact, their policies, their rhetoric, their foreign policy isn't even all that much different, right? There's a continuity between, say, Joe Biden's uh, policy stance towards, say, China and Donald Trump's. They both have this same sort of view of trying to stop China from its inevitable rise and using any sort of rhetoric, any sort of policy, and ultimately probably any sort of violence they possibly could in order to make that happen. So what's the fucking difference? There's no fucking difference. There's no fucking difference. The liberals say it in a, in a little bit of a nicer way. Yeah, you yeah. Know? They are, they're not near, merely as vulgar, mere, uh, nearly as vulgar as, say, Donald Trump is, but very, very, very disconcerting. Let's talk about the rise of, um, of hate crimes against Chinese Americans. It's something, obviously, you're very cognizant. You've been watching very closely. Mm -hmm. um, what What's happening out there on the streets right now? What should people be looking out for? I mean, I hear of a different incident every day. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was a video circulating Twitter uh, of this, like, um, young Asian couple who were being assaulted on, like, a Philadelphia subway platform, like, Someone had, someone had like grabbed their phone and filmed this like mob of teenagers just like assaulting this uh, couple and like kicking them while they were like down on the ground. Um, I was, I'll, I'll say, I was in the store the other day uh, just getting some oh, supplies, right, right. and uh, I heard the guy behind the counter talking to one of the customers, neighborhood guy, and the the dude. Um, in front of the counter said like, oh man, this, this virus is crazy. The guy behind said like, yeah, I can't believe, you know, how quickly it spread. The other guy says, yeah, it's all the Chinese people. The, the Chinese all have it. The Chinese all have it. Yeah. And these aren't white people. The, the guy, the customer was a Puerto Rican yeah. and the guy behind the counter was, a, I think, South Asian of some type, right? But this sense that there is something racial about this pandemic is widespread. I mean, it's certainly amongst like working class people in New York City mm -hmm. and certainly, I think, like in larger swaths of the media. So yeah, it's yeah. something I've personally seen myself. I think there's a, there's a great 
misunderstanding not just of uh china and i hope this isn't digressing too much but like not just of chinese people in china but i think also like the chinese american experience at least since like the 1965 immigration and nationality act which Mm -hmm. opened up a new you know ability for many many people who weren't you know, white people from Europe to start emigrating to the United States. There's this sense that uh, Asians are this model minority, Mm -hmm. that they don't face similar troubles uh, as other minorities, and also that they aren't, like, predominantly working class, which Mm, I think if you look at it, most Chinese people, just like most white people, black people, Latinx people are working class, but just because most people are working class. So from experience and also generally, talk a little bit about that dynamic. Okay, so the model, let's talk about the history of the model minority myth. Let's do it. We love history on this podcast. Um, So the model minority myth kind of emerged out of this backdrop of uh, the Cold War, 1950s and 60s, where there was, um, you know, like in the States, there were like these like calls for uh, black civil rights and then like in general, like black internationalism and solidarity and Daniel Patrick Monaghan who was a sociologist our senator here in the great state of New York senator from New York and worked in the Johnson administration he put out a report that basically blamed black poverty on uh, dysfunctional families and that poverty was inherent to black culture itself it couldn't be that black Americans didn't land on Plymouth Rock, but that Plymouth Plymouth Rock landed on them. It couldn't have been slavery, Jim Crow or whatever. It had to be the black family, which is rhetoric that you still hear nowadays. And folks, Moynihan was a fucking liberal. He was an er ur-liberal. So (laughs) as as a foil to um, black people, um, they, the um, administration and media started talking about you know, juxtaposing Asian Americans as these hardworking um, folks who upwardly like, mobile, upwardly mobile, yeah. who immigrated here, and they sort of embodied the Protestant values of individualism, the nuclear family, meritocracy, right. and they could uh, like like advance um, and be upwardly mobile without calling for social reorganization or ah. um, like structural changes we the way that like to have a great society people were right yeah and so it was used as a wedge to drive like to it was used as like a wedge that was driven between like you know different like POC sure um, and within the working uh, class in general yeah to yeah. like prevent this like kind of working class solidarity right right Fascinating, fascinating. Um, yeah yeah and it's like still extremely harmful to like asian americans today like um what a lot of people don't know is that like asians asian americans suffer the highest poverty rate in new york city no shit right but nobody knows that but we are so like we are so used to thinking of asian people like as upwardly mobile as, as doctors as engineers right, yeah. that these communities can't get the resources that they need because people believe this wow so then that is sort of uh, so the conditions already exist there's already a chinese underclass mm-hmm. an impoverished 
uh, Chinese working class in yeah, this like country. Yeah, like look at Chinatown. Look sure. at like uh, the, the one of three Chinatowns. There's three right, Chinatowns. Right, in, right, yeah, right. all of them have have high amounts of poverty. You're saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so now those similar to other minority groups in the country now Chinese Americans more so than they were before are being not merely uh, oppressed and dominated and exploited by the levers of capitalism. On top of it is coming this call from liberals and also from certainly conservatives, xenophobes out there that are now causing real incitement Mm -hmm. against people in this community um, in a way that we've probably never seen before, right? Mm -hmm. In our, in our lifetimes. That's frightening. Mm -hmm. So that must, uh, do you, do you get a sense then that the anxiety levels are rising quite a lot now? Oh yeah. I, I talk about it with my Asian friends. We're all really scared. We're all really, really scared. And it's also like a very, it's a very like lonely, isolating experience because, uh, this issue isn't really talked about outside of the Asian American community. It's not like taken seriously outside of the Asian American community. Um, one thing that's been really fascinating to me uh, since this epidemic sprung up is like the many different multifaceted ways that anti-Chinese, anti-Asian racism exists, you know? Like we were talking about earlier, you have Trump calling it the foreign virus, the China virus, which is explicitly like racist. But then you have like this sort of like 12 dimensional New York Times racism (laughs) where uh, it's like blaming, um, like I said earlier, like blaming the CCP calling that calling china and the chinese government uh an incubator of a pandemic and i mean that's like that's going to affect asian american communities um that directs blame toward asian american communities and when i saw it in person when i was at the bodega and you had a, a guy saying that like all chinese have it yeah and it's been so frustrating to see the reactions uh to it Especially among Asian Americans, because like Asian, like for the most part in general, Asian American diaspora, they identify way more as American than as Chinese or Asian. And so you have, I see a lot of Chinese Americans, they will distance themselves from China. And, you know, like maybe they uh, like, you know, someone says something to them, they'll say something like, Oh, I've never been to China. I was mm. born here. I'm I'm Wearing I'm American. That as, a, as a badge of honor. Yeah. Or like Korean Americans will be like, "Oh, I'm not Chinese. I'm Korean. It's a totally different country." Right. Yeah. So similar to the dynamic that you see where Chinese people in China can only have a voice if they're doing what Americans think they should be doing, that sort of colonial mindset is sort of like turned back inwards for Chinese Americans and Asian Americans in general, mm-hmm. where they feel like the only way they can be good Americans is by rejecting. That's part of the model minority myth, right? Part of like the model minority myth is renouncing your like country of origin as like dirty, as backward, as communist, <coughs> and just like you know, like identifying as an American with all the baggage that comes from being mm-hmm. an American. 
we're certainly seeing a lot of that baggage uh, unloaded right now um, as we continue through this crisis. Uh, that was about an hour and a half. I think that was really good. Should we kind of do think- some parting words or did you have more to say? I think it's time to part. I'm getting kind of hungry. All right. Well, in that case, folks, folks, you still have to eat in a lockdown. There is still tasty victuals in the Q zone. You still have to sustain yourself. Partying in the Q zone. (laughs) Eating lunch in the Q zone. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I would say uh, there's uh, unfortunately right now, and, and I was talking about this earlier with other people, there isn't, we can't do demonstrations we can't really do protests we can keep in touch with one another online and certainly this podcast is going to be trying to put out as much content as we can a because we don't have anything else to do and b because i think it's important that people kind of you know have one other way to sort of reach out to the to the rest of the world golden age of content the golden age of content folks golden age of posting golden age of masturbation it's now the golden age of everything (laughs) that doesn't involve going out in public and performing performing economic activities so i don't know i think that the most folks can do is i guess like be in touch with and express solidarity with any uh, Asian American mm-hmm. friends that you have, comrades that you have out if there. If you see something. Say something. If you see something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not like in a snitch way, but right. like if you see a racist remark, like not just explicitly, but, you know, in that liberal kind of racism, please, please like say something. Call it out, folks. You got to call it out because this is a bad, bad, bad road to go down. I don't know how many millions and millions of uh, Asian Americans there are in this country, but there's a lot. And Lord knows that a battle against China, a war with China, which is one way to get yourself out of an economic crisis, of course, would be bad for everybody. Uh, in fact, the United oh, yeah, States yeah, I have relatives lose. that still live there. Please don't. Yeah. Please don't like drive us into a war with China. Listeners, if you're out there, do not get in a bomber and bomb China. If they ask you, if you do, I hope you get your limbs blown off. (laughs) We hope you get Corona first. (laughs) That's a good way to end it. All right, folks. Thanks, Amanda, for coming on the pod. We'll do it again sometime. All right, folks. Be safe out there. Take care of one another. Bye bye. Now there's a wall between us. Something that's been lost. I took too much for granted, I got my signals crossed Just between till it all began on a non-eventful morn Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm Well, the deputy walks on hard nails and the preacher rides a mount But nothing really matters much, it's doom alone that counts and the one-eyed undertaker, he blows a feudal horn. Come in, she said, I'll give ya shelter from the storm. I've heard newborn babies wailing like a moaning dove. And old men with broken teeth stranded without love. Do I understand your question, man? Is it hopeless and forlorn? Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. In a little hilltop village, they gambled for my clothes. I bargained for salvation and she gave me a lethal dose. 
I offered up my innocence. I got repaid with scorn. Come in, she said, I'll give you a shelter from the storm. I'm living in a foreign country, but I'm bound to cross the line. Beauty walks a razor's edge, someday I'll make it mine. If I could only turn back the clock to when God and her were born. Come in, she said, I'll give ya shelter from the storm. 